You know, for me, the, the calling itself, and not, not just the emotional work, and not so much the archetypal work as part of Sacred Purpose, but if, if there's a calling, for me, the calling to write, if you can do that, whatever that thing is, it's like a portal to divinity. It's like your way of accessing a unified field, um, and it becomes like a buffer against the madness of the world. Welcome to the Art of Humanity with Jessica Ann. Listen for fresh perspectives with artists, leaders, authors, and entrepreneurs. Explore creativity and consciousness. Evolve your business with the art of humanity. Now, here's your host, Jessica Ann. Hi, I'm Jessica Ann, and this is the Art of Humanity, where we explore creativity and consciousness to allow you and your business to evolve. For more episodes, you can check out the archives at jessicaannmedia.com. Today, I'm so thrilled to have with me Jeff Brown. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to The Art of Humanity. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Jessica. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, Jeff, I absolutely love your work in the world. Um, But before we talk more about that and we get into the gist of what you do now, I would love for you to describe your fascinating background as a lawyer, (laughs) of all things, and what led you to where you're at in the world today. Mm. I had this masochistic and unstoppable need to find my authentic face in this lifetime, I think, mm-hmm. um, to put it simply. Um, yeah, I mean, I, was, I had always wanted to be a criminal trial lawyer growing up in Canada, and there was a man named Eddie Greenspan. I used to see him on TV. He was a well-known criminal lawyer, and I, I always knew I'd work with him. And I used to say, I'm going to work with that man one day. Um, and then somehow I, I did. I articled or apprenticed with him for 12 months. We did a very high-profile murder trial here. And it was, in a way, the perfect thing for me. He um, he handed me the reins, really, cross-examination and most of the trial structuring. And um, So I really had an opportunity to go to a place inside of my own mind that I didn't know that I could and to find abilities that I didn't even know that I had. Um, he had that much faith in me. And... And the other beautiful thing that happened is I kind of had an experience of what trial law was at the highest levels as an articling student and knew that it was time to move on from that dream to some other part of my path. And um, so when I was just around being the time when I was being called to the bar, um, I was about to sign on a dotted line and rent an office with a bunch of other uh, young lawyers. And uh, some part of me just said no. I named that part Little Missy, this little part inside of me that seemed to have some other path waiting for me. And there was an interface between the warrior consciousness that I was so familiar with and whatever this path was calling me towards for a long period of time. Um, And then eventually I just stepped off the law path and decided to uh, journey internally and and see what lay within me. And, And after a whole lot of different steps, you know, in the direction of my confusion and in the direction of doing emotional clearing work and and exploring the sacred purpose that lives inside of me at a time when I didn't even have words for that. Um, it became clear that it was time to write in 2001, and I sat down and began to write Soul Shaping, and, and I pretty much haven't stopped writing since. You mentioned that this came at a time when you were experiencing things that you didn't even have words for it. Yeah. Um, can you maybe, now that you do have words for it, yeah. Um, can you maybe put that into words, what you were experiencing yeah. at the time? Yeah. I mean, I, I came to believe and have come to believe that I and everybody comes into this life uh, with a particular encoded path, 
what James Hillman called the innate image, what I would call soul scriptures or true path. I mean, it's the same thing, and I also call it now sacred sacred purpose. And that, you know, that there are particular emotional issues and and patterns and unresolved material areas that we're here to grow through and to work through. You know, wherever there's growth, there's purpose for me. Mm-hmm. And at the heart of that material is transformation. There are callings and offerings and gifts that we're here to bring the world. And to the extent that we can embody those and express those, actualize those, we move our soul one step closer to wholeness and certain archetypal pathways. For me, one of them was to move from a pretty armored warrior consciousness to a more surrendered or benevolent warrior consciousness. That's a real primary archetypal shift for me from uh, the beginning of this lifetime to this point in this life. And, you know, so I just really just call it true path or sacred purpose. And, you know, many of us are on a survivalist, um, living through a survivalist lens. That's where the world has been, where we define who we are based on what puts food on the table, you know, and whatever mask disguises and adaptations that we have to. And to maintain that um, and moving in the direction of authenticity, which is asking the question of who you really are, why you're here, and what you're here to bring to the world is, you know, we're at the very beginning of that. And that's how I understand the world. And what got me from one place to the other, apart from super hard, intense work, um, was what I call true fakes, these little reminders internally that come up either in depression or in uh, dreamscapes or in, you know, voices in our head or whatever it is that call us in the direction of what we're meant to become in this lifetime and and try to stop us when we're about to move in the direction of something that's not true to path. And so law at that moment in time, when I article for Eddie, it was perfect. There was no dissonance about that internally. I knew that I had to do law at least for some period of time to move beyond that. And And then little Missy woke up and said, okay, you're just about to become a trial lawyer and get busy and lost in this for the next three decades. And and that's when the truth aches arose. Spiritual emergency, Stan Groff called them. You know, sleepless nights and perpetual feelings of anxiety during the day, like I was about to make a deathly horrifying decision in my life. And um, yeah, I think that's that's kind of how I understand reality now. Hmm, interesting. So you call them truth aches. And in a man in this world, it's not really something that's openly discussed. How hard was it for you to access this side of you and and be so open about it? Was it did you experience you know, a gradual surrendering or did you just, you know, wake up one day and knew that you had to live differently? No, I think this interface, I had this kind of pretty uh, developed witness in my teenage years that used to look at me and talk to me and say you're not who you're meant to be or you're not who you were at a certain age. There was there was some part of me that was comparing how I was manifesting or moving through the world, even as a pretty feisty, edgy guy, pretty armored, a pretty uh, pragmatic, definitely not esoteric at all. So, But there was always this interaction that kept resurfacing between this more subtle or surrendered voice in me and who I identified myself as. And I don't know why that is, you know, if I just came into life if that was intrinsic to my soul's journey, if I had reached some stage in my journey of awareness, or I don't know. It certainly wasn't modeled to me anywhere that I looked. And in in my 20s and 30s, when I was doing this work in the legal community and in the Jewish community, most of us were very survivalist-oriented, just trying to secure our place in the world, Mm -hmm. particularly young men. Uh, This was, uh, I was was alone with this. I didn't um, talk to anyone about it. I did work therapeutically around the emotional material, but I spent very little time therapeutically talking about sacred purpose or path. And 
Um, and I lived through this struggle. I remember at 30, it was I felt insane inside because I had two pathways of possibility pushing up against me in absolute equal measure. Mm-hmm. I remember driving to, the law, driving to the Law Society, pulling into the underground at Toronto Underground City Hall, and I was going to go upstairs and sign on the dotted line and insure and all the rest, and then I went to the office. This was the second time. And I remember smashing the dash super hard in the car. I felt so frustrated at my inability to cross over in one direction mm. or the other. And, and, uh, and as a man and, uh, who identified himself, as I was a firstborn Jew, and I had struggled my way through economically and knocked on doors and made my way through school without support, I was an edgy, edgy guy. So it was quite something to have this soft voice that my warrior self called Little Missy that kept coming into my consciousness telling me that I was moving in the wrong direction. It was tough. It was. It, it took. It took all the courage that I had. I loved law. It was so difficult to walk away, but just there was just this voice that just knew what was next. Maybe there are some uh, other listeners out there who hear this voice as well, and maybe, maybe they're not sure how to come to grips with these emotions. What are there any pieces of advice that you can offer them about the process, or? Are there any maybe yeah. emotions that you can talk about that might come into the light that might help them shift towards their authentic selves? I mean, I think that therapy is a very important part of anything called the spiritual path. You know, and you know when we separate out something called spirituality from our humanness, I think we're moving in the wrong direction. And so, for me, the emotional material work that I did, clearing emotional debris that I was holding, that the collective's holding. I mean, we're all holding it. Mm-hmm. Moving anger, moving grief, going into those uncomfortable places, mostly ultimately in body-centered psychotherapies like bioenergetics. Um, for me, that was essential work because clearing through the debris created space inside for my true path to reveal itself. So that was the one advantage. And the other important part of the work is that, you know, for me, repressed emotions are unactualized spiritual lessons. To the extent that I can work through and hold the space for my uncomfortable material, I can hold the space for my spiritual process. So for me, emotional and spiritual maturation are the same. So to the extent that I could go deeply into that emotional work, I transformed. By working through material, I became more available to my path. I became less obstructed by my path, and I transformed into somebody who was just able to hold the space for reality in a much more mature way than I had before. I don't see how anybody can expand on anything called the spiritual path without doing the deeper emotional work around the wound material and to transforming their way out of the obstructions, the shame body, the internalized guilt, all the stuff all the stuff that's coming from the survivalist structure, you know, so much of duty, obligation, shaming, and guilting is intrinsic to that structure. And you have to do this work if you're going to be able to find your sacred purpose. And when you do the work, you realize that it's all been part of your sacred purpose. Mm, I love that. You, you say that you are now able to hold the space for reality. More, much more fully. Yeah, that's right. I don't have as much of a need for escape hatches. I don't have as many self-destructive behaviors. I mean, I, st- I have some still under pressure, like that's when the fractures come up more. But in, in the, my day-to-day consciousness, I'm, I don't get in my own way as much anymore. I don't find it so difficult to be in all of the totality of my feelings. I'm able to give over to my path without getting in my own way. And so much of that has to do with just living, but also living with a, a healing and a consciousness intentionality. 
So is there any other way to access this path if it's not done through our emotions? Well, some people have glimpses of their callings. You know, I mean, if we define the path broadly to include emotional material, then you can't completely, in my view, be on the path without doing that work. But if you're just talking about finding your calling to become a famous pianist or to humbly go out every morning and feed 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 the birds, you know, whatever your particular way of whatever your portal to divinity is, I think you can you can get that information mm-hmm. quite often just from lived experience. Mm-hmm. Um, people have glimpses of path throughout their lives. I'm not sure if you'll be able to hold the space for some of those things if you haven't done the deeper work, but sure. I mean, if all I wanted to do was become a, a famous trial lawyer, I didn't have to do a whole lot more work emotionally than I did. I would be crazy, I would be sleepless, I would be a workaholic, I would be all of those things, but all of those things serve becoming effective as a criminal trial lawyer. Um, But if I wanted to become a writer of the things I write about, which is to move to the next stage on my journey, I absolutely had to do emotional work, or I wouldn't have anything to say in that writing. So it really depends on what calls you and and how far you want to go on the journey. If you want to stop early, then you don't have to do as much work. If you want to keep growing all the way through your lifetime, you're probably going to have to interface with your emotional patterns and issues all the way through. And once you reach this point, once you really tap into your emotions and you kind of reach this point in your consciousness, it's almost as if that there's no way back and there's no other choice. Yeah. I mean, honoring your calling becomes your best defense against sleeplessness. And if you do it for long enough, it just becomes who you are. There's no exit. There's really no return. I wrote a bit about that in Soul Shaping, that mm-hmm. you reach a point. You know, so, so you want to be sure, and any good therapist will also tell you this in the therapeutic work, you know, be, be sure you want to open the door, because once you open the door too much, you, you can't go back anymore. Then you end up between two worlds, and it's incredibly difficult. And But, you know, if you stay and you have enough drive to arrive in the path all the way through and you're willing to fight for your right to the light and that's really what it was for me I had so much tenacity and so much drive and I still have such a radical amount of determination for whatever reason to keep going on this path and finding my voice and writing the next book and so you know but but again if I hadn't done at least enough emotional work to deal with those parts of me that would have held me back I wouldn't have been able to find the energy because all the energy would have gone to repressing that material you know and to holding back and to sustaining my defenses and mechanisms. So you do usually have to do a fair amount of work um, to clear the debris in the field before you can be fully, completely on fire on your path and then reach a stage where there's no turning back. And once you really make that clearing, um, you like what happens? Like, Do you just feel this almost like an expressible sense of liberation that comes in yeah. just through your soul and and what, so what can you tell people yeah. who go ahead Talk yeah no no that's mm-hmm. a really good question on, uh, on its own um i i think what, i mean i don't it's not like my path is easy it's not like writing these books is easy bond was a hard book you know mm-hmm. and the next book is going to be a hard book and and i know that but you, but what's missing now that i had before is the confusion as to why i'm here and i found that i particularly found that confusion very uncomfortable i knew there was something else waiting for me and i just either couldn't see it or i wasn't quite ready enough to take the one seat and actualize it and so what's missing now for my life is that confusion. I know I'm here and I know what work is next and it's all lined up inside of me, the next download, the next book, the next. And I love that feeling. 
I just love it after spending so many years and perhaps perhaps spending lifetimes in the uncertainty as to why. I mean, most survivalists don't ever know why they're here. They just think they're here to survive and everything gets organized around survival. And so mm-hmm. to have this sense as to why on the deepest, truest levels, and it was very risky. I left the likelihood of great success and probably fame in trial law. I worked with Eddie. I did a major trial. I was an award-winning student. I was really incredibly crazy jazzed about it. I wasn't a guy who just fumbled his way into law because his mother told him to be a lawyer. I loved law, and Mm. it was like I'd done it forever. So, you know, I think I carried the belief or the worry for many years that I was the one schmuck who had it made and then just walked away to become nothing or something. (laughs) And so I think now that I feel like I'm really clear and the world is validating me, thank God for that, (laughs) because that helps me, that I moved in the right, yeah, that I moved in the right direction, there's a great sense of relief. Um, You know, for me, the the calling itself, and not, not just the emotional work and not so much the archetypal work as part of Sacred Purpose, but if, if there's a calling, for me, the calling to write, if you can do that, whatever that thing is, it's like a portal to divinity. It's like your way of accessing a unified field. Um, and it becomes like a buffer against the madness of the world. So when I can get lost in that, I'm not as triggered by things in the world. I'm not as aware of the unconsciousness around me. And, you know, I didn't get sick for 15 years. Touch wood, this goes on for a little longer. But I didn't get sick for years working like a dog, and I believe it's because I was every day excited about why I'm here. Mm. So it it gives you a lot of gifts, but those gifts don't come uh, easily. Yeah, it definitely comes at a cost. (laughs) It does. It does. That's right. No path is an easy path that's a substantial path. But you just, if you find the one that's for you, then there's, there's great satisfaction in that. Yeah, absolutely. I believe it. And and many listeners might be between these two worlds. Um, yeah. They might be feeling the brazen authenticity in their bones, but at the same time, still a bit scared to show this naked, real version of themselves to the world yeah. because yeah. we're taught at such a young age to wear a mask. Yeah. So it's a slow evolution. So what can you recommend to any listeners out there who might be currently undergoing the shedding of their layers? I mean, I think, first of all, to be really realistic about what's happening here. We have a whole human history that's built around survivalism, masks, adaptations, and disguises, and defenses. Mm -hmm. People define themselves that way. So we are the pioneers. We are the first trailblazers, really, to step foot in the modern world, and probably in the world before this, on this path where we have an opportunity to excavate our real reasons for being here and to, in some cases, actually go ahead and make them happen. And so I think, you know, it's a very uncomfortable place to be. You're holding on to one vine loosely, holding on to the other vine loosely, like a monkey in between, not really knowing where your feet are. You're still conditioned in a survivalist world. The world's still organized around survivalism. And yet, you know, you have found some other path living inside of you that wants to come to life. And So I think it's, first of all, to be realistic, three steps forwards, two steps back. You are going to step back off that path, and you probably need to in order to comfortably integrate change. We're habitual. Humans are habitual. Security and safety are deeply important and unconscious and primal level. So it's okay when you move forward and come back a little and then move forward a little. In fact, if it happens any other way, I'm not so sure it's going to ultimately be sustainable. that's my primary recommendation is to make it realistic and also to find a soul pot of people that are resonating. It's easier now than it was when I did this work initially. 
mm-hmm. Facebook, my fan page is filled with tons of people who are working this out and trying to find their way to a more authentic way of being after years of survivalism. So support, if you can find it, is fantastic. Um, you know, beware the new cage movement, beware ungrounded spirituality, beware the bypassers, beware the people who are telling you that, you know, you can witness your pain body across the room and it's all healed and transformed. They're all dissociative. You really need to bring everything together in the spiritual field. If you're going to make it through and across the river in a real way and still be in your body and in your heart and present for your experience, You've got to do all of the emotional work as part of that process. And, and, you know, you need to create space and solitude for yourself. And that's so hard and overstimulating. The world's moving so much faster than it was 20 years ago when I did this work, mm-hmm. or 15 to 20 years ago. It's, it's rapid fire now. Distractions are everywhere. The smartphone is dangerous. It's, it's hardcore, you know, so you have to create space for your process. I, I used to create a lot of space for it because how do you integrate anything if you don't have space to integrate it when you're undistracted? And yeah, those are some of the things that come to mind. Yeah, it's so important, this this work that you're doing. And I think as, um, and you're, you have a great community, by the way. I love your yeah. Facebook community. It's super um, smart, creative, caring people. Um, we're really, it's a group of, super empathetic people as well. And, you know, we're like these empathetic people that um, are doing this work are pretty in tune with their environment and they're sensitive to the energies at play. And, you know, like you said, it's the world is moving so quickly. So we need to be almost hyper vigilant about what we're consuming. And as a former national news producer, some of the stuff that you write about news really resonates with me. Um, you write about the unconscious media, and you believe yep. that the unconscious media works the dark side. Can oh, yeah. you describe what you mean by the unconscious media and why you think that the members of the unconscious media need a vacation? Yeah. I think they need imprisonment, actually. Um, so I distinguish conscious from, there are a lot of good media people out there who are of the belief that they're doing work and are in fact doing work to bring things to light that need to bring to be brought to light in order to make the world a better place. They're, they ex- absolutely exist, and and they probably are largely responsible for some of the most important changes ever made on this planet. But there's a machine, and that is the unconscious media, that really primarily, I, I mean, I used to notice how they would exaggerate negative weather reports and minimize positive weather reports. It was just a very simple thing, but I thought, what are they up to, these people? What is this system built on? Mm-hmm. And of course, I understand now what it is, because 9-11 happened, my grandmother called me, and I saw myself get hooked in, and I heard of people who had heart attacks and people who jumped off bridge. All kinds of things happened because of the horrible terror negativity that got entrenched in their bones and triggered all their survivalist material. So given that we're all living with a survivalist wound and carrying poverty consciousness and terrible fear and anxiety at every turn in a still frightening world, it makes a lot of sense that some element of the media deliberately stokes and triggers our survivalist anxiety piece um, and keeps people anxious and nervous because the more anxious and nervous they are, the more negative and worried they are, the more likely they are to stay gripped to news reports in case they miss out on the one key piece of information that will keep them alive. On a conscious level in the West, this sounds irrational. Why do we? What's going to happen? Probably not much. We're probably going to be okay. But most people carry the seed of this tremendous survivalist anxiety. And 
So they just keep stoking it with exaggerated news reports, with uh, perpetual presentation of horrifying images. I mean, why do you think you turn on the news and they keep telling you somebody got stabbed in a city 400 miles from you? Is this relevant to your day? Not really. I mean, it's really not relevant to your day. You're not seeing it around you. You're not having to deal with it in your field in particular. They're doing it because they know that hooks you into that level of anxiety that you carry inside of you. So you'll keep watching their news and they'll sell more advertising revenue. You know, when Occupy went after the stock market, I kept saying they're moving in the wrong direction. Half of them should stay at the stock market and half of them should be standing outside of the buildings of the unconscious media, insisting on grounded, positive, conscious news presentation so that we can move forward as a society instead of being forever gripped to survivalism as a way of being. Mm. It, yeah, I, I love that. I, I think it's so important to really talk about this because... They're killing people, Jessica. This is no game. People have heart attacks. People have strokes. People get cancer from anxiety. This is no game. This is criminal, what's happening. Some of them have what's called in criminal law the mens rea, which means the guilty mind, and actus reus, which is guilty act. They have a guilty intention. They're performing a guilty act. That means they're criminals, and that means they should be prosecuted in criminal courts. American government, Canadian government, all governments should have an interface with the news and tell them we do not want you to keep promoting this level of survivalist anxiety in our people. You're killing our people. You need to present your news accurately or we are going to shut you down. End of story. That's how you protect the people. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that is a pretty polarizing concept right there. Um, and, and I mean, I, I agree with you. Um, I just think that at the same time, there's so many people who believe that the news makes you smart and you need to know what goes on. Smart in the news. Smart news makes you smart. You know, <laughs> I, I've been watching this wonderful show called Newsroom with, um, oh, with Jeff Daniels. It's brilliant. And mm -hmm. if that was the news, I'd say keep watching the news. These people take it seriously. They think twice about what they're saying. They're very conscious. That's conscious news making. But I don't see very much of that out there in the world. The faster we move, the more, you know, consumerism preys on the uncentered. I said that in Soul Shaping, and mm -hmm. I believe that. And so if you're uncentered, you're going to make unconscious choices. And so once they've got us so hooked in, rapid-fire advertising, over-distracted, constant level of distraction in the culture, the pace and stimulation of the culture out of control, and then this barrage of exaggerated, horrifying negative news imagery, people don't know what the hell they're doing anymore. They cannot make uh, conscious decisions. They don't have enough space or time to center themselves again. They may never have been centered to begin with. So I think we want to develop a media. There's nothing wrong with the media, but we want to develop a media that's actually only interested in making the world a better place. You're still going to tell the news. You're still going to report on some of the horrifying things that happen in the world, but you're not going to do it with the intention of going one level farther and digging the knife into people's survivalist anxiety in order to increase advertising revenues. I love it. I actually talk about this in my book. I call it um, the difference between fast media and slow media. Slow media actually makes you laugh and think and question the status quo. And I mean, you're saying this as a previous uh, criminal lawyer. So I'm just I'm curious, how long do you think that this will take before the world transforms and learns about the negative consequences of watching fear based news? Well, I feel like two things are happening right now. I feel like there is a, a consciousness movement and I think it's beginning to get more grounded. I think it started 
as very much an ungrounded, what I call the new cage movement spirituality, which is not going to get us anywhere good. Mm-hmm. I think it's starting to come back into a more earthbound uh, format. I think it's starting to ground in earth and get more sensible, so a more sensible spirituality, you know, where authenticity is honored, but it has to become real. And at the same time, we have the pace of the culture going against us. We have the intensification of the unconscious media and its behavior. You know, and we have a whole lot of people writing in the spiritual field that are mostly interested in celebrity, mm. you know, who are calling themselves thought leaders when they've never had an original thought. And so we have these two, these two polarities in many ways. And I'm, I've always been, for the most part, optimistic that the growthful, forward-moving polarity is going to take us uh, farther and ju- that will just cross the line ahead of the impact of the negativity. I'm, lately, I'm not so sure. I may just be tired, but I'm, sometimes I'm not so sure anymore. We may need, as Alexander Lowen said to me, something absolutely horrifying, which could be. Uh, a, a radical climate shift, something on this planet for us to slow down enough to get back in touch with our centers and make these kinds of shifts. I don't know. And I do see that happen after horrifying events. You know, we, we kind of come back into ourselves a little bit and realize the importance of this planet and the importance of our humanity. Yeah. Do you think that it's necessary to, I mean, I know you said you, this, you could be saying this because you're tired, but at the same yeah. time, do you think it's necessary to have a cataclysmic event happen for us to become more aware? Well, I, I've never wanted to believe that that's true. I mean, I, and I do think that people, you know, pull over on the side of the road or slow down to look at accidents partly because they actually want to get reconnected to the, their mortality and the fragility of life and something that actually matters, you know. Mm-hmm. I used to catch myself doing that, and I didn't feel like I was trying to be some goofy voyeur. I really felt like I was wanting something to force me back into the deeper realities and truths. And it's true. Like, I remember when Lady Diana passed away, and there was the funeral, and everyone I knew woke up. To, I really felt connected to a unified field, and it was an example of a horrible thing. It felt like it, it created... A, a more connected and compassionate consciousness for many people in the world. But at the same time, because of the barrage of overstimulating negative news, I think for other people, particularly with things like ISIS and 9-11, I think it also creates a tremendous amount of anxiety that no matter what is happening stable in a stable or calm sense in their day-to-day life, they can't get away from. You know, I mean, I grew up with a grandmother who was terrified about everything. Mm-hmm. You know, she was a Jewish grandmother and mm-hmm. Holocaust memories and all the rest of it. So it doesn't didn't take much to get her back into a radically agitated, anxious state. And so, you know, I think those events can move in, in different directions. And it probably has something to do with how they're handled and, and, and whether they overwhelm us with the imagery or whether they just give us enough imagery and then bring us right into the compassionate or empathic place. And, you know, it's all about intentionality. You do mention um, something called the New Cage Movement, which I kind of want to talk about a little bit more. Um, can you can you touch a little bit more about the New Cage Movement? And should we define it? Yeah, I'm I'm curious as to your definition of it because it's important to talk about. I think a little bit right now. It is, but you're gonna need me. Give me a second to pull it up. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> I I have it here, or maybe I'll just Google it. It'll come up. I think it's yeah. I think it's really important. I mean, I think that some of these new new age principles evolved uh, as a shifting away from survivalism. So, for example, 
for somebody like my grandmother to realize that she could ask the universe for what she wants and she might get it, that there is some possibly positive interface between her and the universe was a good thing. It was better than just sitting there in a victimhood experience at all times. But if it goes so far that you start to think that's the way it's all going to happen, which is the new cage, then essentially you end up in a place that's taking us in a backwards direction. Okay, so here's one definition. I think I've in spiritual graffiti, I, I went a little beyond this, but a term to describe the more ungrounded, dangerous, and simplistic elements of the New Age movement, including but not limited to wishful thinking mantras, spiritual bypass and premature forgiveness practices, superficial healing techniques, and the perpetual denial of common sense realities with fantastical perspectives, i.e., everything's an illusion, there are no victims, anger is a substandard emotion, all judgments are bad. You chose your every experience and circumstance. Your personal identifications are inherently false. Just ask the universe for what you want. Blah, blah, blah. Everything you see and feel is a reflection of you. There's no one to blame. The ego is the enemy, etc. There's probably a hundred more of them. Mm-hmm. These, pers- these perspectives have, take- have their place in certain circumstances, but taken too far become a prison of their own making locking people in with their unresolved pain, obstructed from doing the real work by their addictive flights of fancy. The key to escaping New Cage Prison is developing a willingness to do the real work to ground, embody, and heal in authentic terms. On a relational level, New Cage connections are often wound mates, priding themselves in their seeming spirituality, but actually falling apart at the seams, boundaryless, ungrounded, and controlled by all the unresolved emotional material that the crystals didn't quite heal. In their determined efforts to float above the fray, they actually just perpetuate their own wound bodies and miss the opportunity to do the real work, to do the real work, to become conscious uh, together. Like that. So basically, you know, there's a million examples of this nonsense, but you know, it's, and it's not just new agers, it's so-called famous spiritualists, it's people writing about witnessing pain bodies and, you know, who don't really know anything about getting back into their bodies and doing the deep transformation work. It's everywhere now because it's very, very easy to sell ungrounded non-duality or pseudo-non-duality to the masses. Mm -hmm. People want to separate their spirituality from their humanness because it's painful to be human. So it's just like handing them a band-aid and saying, here's your band-aid, just keep buying the band-aid. And I had a friend a couple of years ago who killed themselves because she bought into the new cage material so much and gave up on therapeutic process. And when her depression surfaced, as it always eventually will, um, she really had no tools or resources to handle it and decided to leave us. And, you know, that was a very important moment for me to really understand that ungrounded spirituality, some of them and some of the teachers of them, actually lead people in the direction of their own death. And uh, this is absolutely to be taken seriously. So what are some tools that are really important to have at your disposal? Get into therapy yeah, and include it as part of your spiritual process. And I mean good therapy, okay. not spacey therapy, but good solid body center therapies that will keep you rooted in your body so you'll be in a much better place to make distinctions between people who are giving you silly, ridiculous teachings and people who are inviting you in a healthy direction. So bioenergetics, core energetics, Peter Levine's healing trauma work, Samuel Bonder's waking down movement, people like um, holotropic breathwork is a great way to get back into your body and release. Osho's dynamic meditation you can do every day that you want to, Mm -hmm. to discharge holdings and move back into the body material. And 
I think this somatic work is absolutely essential to remembering that we have a body and that our body really is. You know, Alexander Lowen used to say, if you want to become spiritual, just do the work in your body. Clear all this emotional material, rage and scream and kick and grieve and do all of these things that you need to do to discharge your holdings from your life and from the culture itself. And then you'll become vital and grounded and have energy streaming through your body and you'll become naturally spirited. Mm -hmm. And that made perfect sense to me. Yeah, I'll put all those links to the various tools that you mentioned in, um, on my website for any Great. listeners who want to go and find more. Let me ask you a question, if I could, Jessica. Sure. So you worked in the media. Yes. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so, so in your experience, so I'm, I'm speaking like theoretically, you're, in your experience, is there sometimes something criminal about the way in which the media or some elements of the media are operating in relation to humanity? Oh, that's a great question. I It was more that I could feel of the energy in the newsroom coming from an ungrounded place when we were creating the news. And, and it wasn't like, and, and I mean, I mean that with the most respect for all of my former colleagues that I worked with. And, right. and my, I'm so grateful for my experience with the news. I mean, it wouldn't have got me to where I am today. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, a lot of people just didn't question anything that they were putting out into the world. They right. just kind of accepted it and they would um, disseminate information without really questioning where it was coming from or what it meant to humanity. And that always rubbed me a little bit in the wrong way. I, I was, I'm always a questioner. I always question things. Maybe, it, maybe it's a fault, but because I'm never really happy with any of the responses because <laughs> I always want to go down right. the rabbit hole. But at the same time, the news where we get our information, they never really wanted to go down that rabbit hole. So that would always throw me right. for a little bit of a loop, especially because it was early in my career. And Yeah, you were um, young, younger too, right? I mean, yeah. I get that these people are not waking up, most of them thinking, how can I manipulate humanity? I get that. They're mm-hmm. making a living, you know. It's a, it's a system. And I also get at some point the people have to revolt and say, listen, Mr. News people, we're not going to watch this anymore. We're not interested. We're not buying it. We're not interested. You need to start portraying reality in a more balanced way and not use negativity to try to hook in our anxiety. Do not work our anxiety button to present news. Inform us without trying to screw us up emotionally. Once they do that, and if the people really do that, the news doesn't have to leave. We can still have news, but they'll have to modify the way they do it. And I think a lot of the people working in those environments will themselves be relieved because they can't be enjoying themselves chasing negative stories, looking for the darkest thing they can present in order to beat out the guy next door at the other news station. It can't be pleasurable for people to do this kind of thing, to make a living. And and I get that piece of it as well. But at the same time, I do wonder what has to happen within those institutions themselves, independent of the actions of the people, where people just walk away and say, you know what, I'm tired of hooking people in the darkness. There's so much more to say about the beautiful things happening on this planet. Why can't we just go and present it? I think it will eventually happen. I mean, I think that it's going to take some time to get to that place, but I think there's a lot more, there are a lot more options nowadays to really explore that path. What is next for you? Are you, you're in the middle of writing something new? Is that true? Yeah, yeah. I, two books came out last year, An Uncommon Bond, which is doing very well, and Spiritual Graffiti that just came out. And uh, I'm working on a new 
book that's really my model of spirituality from a more grounded and embodied place. And I'm just in the beginning of structuring. I have a 300-page document in front of me from notes I've taken over the years and thrown into the document. And so now I just have to try to put in some kind of a structure before I can really start that focusing in on the writing. And so that'll take up most of this year and perhaps the early part of next year. And my publishing house in Realman Press is growing. We're signing book deals with other authors. Um, we had a couple come out. My book, Graffiti, and Victoria Erickson's Edge of Wonders doing very well from the autumn. And, and I'm working on ebooks and, and download courses for Soul Shaping Institute. And uh, I'd like to have a website of a whole stream of download courses like the ones that I now have on soulshaping.com. So people at different stages and places in the path will be able to, to go and hook into a course on a paid, you know, with a sliding scale payment structure, which is what I like to do, so that it can meet them where they are on the path. And then when they move to the next stage, they'll have another course that may speak to where they are on the path. So I have a whole bunch of courses when I start getting more into the heart of this book that I'll be working. Oh, that's so exciting. So it is. It feels yeah, perfect. That's great. Is it going to be a lot different than your previous books and your previous work? Uh, I feel like, you know, I feel like I've, 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 uh, have three books deeply, uh, deep in my heart. Uh, soul shaping was the first of the trilogy and, and it was absolutely had to be written first. An uncommon bond was really the second of my trilogy. It was also a book that had to be written and, and, it's and one of my I favorite knew, books. I love that thank book. Thank you. It's, thank you. I mean, it's a hard book, but it's I, I'm ha- I'm I'm completely other other than a few editing things I need to clean up. I'm very at peace with that book. Both of those books were encoded in me. I knew they were going to happen for many years. They were part of my consciousness. And this third book really is the book that is uh, has developed through the writing and experiencing through my journeys with Bhagavan Das and Ram Das and Karmageddon. And it really isn't so much that it was obviously encoded. It just is the uh, fruit of the labor of everything I've tried to understand through radio shows in particular and interactions with people and readings and writings over the last eight or ten years. And So I'm looking forward to it. The love book was a hard book to write because I was busy in my circumstances, but the material itself was just sitting waiting inside of me. It was, you know, I felt like in a way I didn't really even write that book or I pre-encoded wrote that book. Whereas this book is like soul shaping. It feels like a book that's going to teach me something because I have to go to an edge that I haven't gone to yet in order to express it. Because you have to go to an edge that you haven't that gone to That I haven't yet. gone to yet in order to wow. express it. Yeah, it's not encoded. It, it's like parts of it are clear to me and there's parts I'm not clear about yet. It's going to be a very, very difficult write. And, and um, I think for that reason, I'm, I'm actually excited about it. I'm going to learn something. And that's how you know that you're human, right? It's going to that edge and exploring it, not knowing it's going to come, you know, not knowing how it'll come out on the other side, right? Just keep growing. You know, some of my clients, they say to me sometimes, how how long is this going to take? And then I say, how long do you think it's going to take? It's going to take your whole lifetime. (laughs) Never ends. And, uh, yeah, they they don't want to hear that, but that's, you know, I mean, I'd like to keep growing for as long as I can grow in one form or another. It, uh, It makes life much more interesting than being stuck. Amen to that, for Amen. sure. A woman. So, uh, a, a woman. <laughs> that too. Uh, so where can listeners go to learn more about you and your work? Uh, fan page on, on Facebook is great. Jeff Brown fan page. Um, mm-hmm. Soulshaping.com is my main website. Sacred Feminine Rising, Inner Child Rising, and there's a Sacred Purpose download course there and some of my books. And soulshapinginstitute.com, courses that I'm, download courses that I'm teaching. And uh, my publishing house is in Realman Press in realment.com and my film Carmageddon is available at carmageddonthemovie.com it's always there for download or a DVD purchase excellent thank you so much for joining me Jeff it's a pleasure having you thank you so much too
One of the ways that I've built an engaged audience of over 100,000 readers over the years is content marketing. Content marketing is real, relevant, and inspiring information that helps your business to grow, it brings in money, and it allows your website to endlessly be exposed to new audiences. This translates into more impact, influence, and sales. But before you start your blog, the one thing that you'll need, no matter what, is a web hosting provider. One web hosting provider that I recommend is HostGator. If you go to HostGator.com and use the code JAM2016, you can get 25% off of all new hosting packages with HostGator. So go to HostGator.com and sign up today. Thanks for listening to The Art of Humanity. Please follow us on Twitter at It's Jessica Ann. Join us next week with your host, Jessica Ann. Evolve your business with The Art of Humanity.